One of our traditions here at Village is every Advent season, uh, we light the Advent candles, um, each one sig signifying a different aspect of our hoping and longing and waiting uh, uh, for the coming of our King. This morning we light the candle of hope, if I can. There we go, it's lit. Um, what is hope? Modern culture tells us that it's a, a maybe, a kind of unsure optimism. But in Scripture, hope is an indication of certainty. Hope means a strong and confident expectation. The Israelites were hoping for a Savior, their Messiah. God had promised a Messiah, and they believed it. They didn't know when or who, but they were waiting. Zechariah was a Levite in the nation of Israel. He worked in the temple, and he was a God-fearing man. And his wife, Elizabeth, was childless in a culture where child, children were considered to be a sign of God's blessing. Zechariah had prayed and prayed to God, asking for a child, but God had not sent one. As Zechariah stood in the Holy of Holies that day, preparing to offer the sacrifices for the people, an angel appeared to him with a message from God. Fear not, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to name him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord his God. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go before the Lord to make ready a people. But when Zechariah heard Gabriel's words, his first reaction was not hope. It was doubt. He asked the angel, but how can this be? I am an old man. The angel responded, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Elizabeth did become pregnant, and Zechariah found himself wholeheartedly living in hope, in confident expectation that God would give him a son and that the long-awaited Messiah was soon to follow. And today, we too can live in Zechariah's hope. We can live in the certainty and the confident expectation that Christ not only came into this world as a baby so long ago, but he will return. And everything that God has promised will come true. What a hope. So our scripture reading this morning is Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, if you want to turn with me. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior 
in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, it's, it's good to see you all. Um, uh, first morning of Advent. This might be the first time we've opened a window in wintertime. Um, in, in this building, so I'm glad you're all cozy. The heat is off, so it is, it will cool off. Um, um, our plan is just to get those being baptized so hot that they think the water is refreshing and not freezing. Um, so afterwards, if you need a dip, feel free um, when, when we're done. So, um, yeah, so we start the first uh, week of Advent. Um, special thanks to Alice, who's being baptized today, and uh, some of, the, of her team uh, who helped. The place looks amazing, and um, she does flowers every week um, at the front. So um, thanks very much uh, for your time and effort. They were in here yesterday, and then um, it's good to see the Canadian visitors uh, back as well. So yeah, good to uh, have Emma and Sam uh, in your return as well. So, um, so let's just jump in um, here. If we, if we can, and we'll go to, um, can I get those on here? Is that right? Um, we're getting uh, right into Advent. Uh, Advent is a really important, as, as we've said already, it's very important in the church calendar, and there's a reason for that. Um, so much of, of our culture and society wants to just rush headlong right into the kind of Christmas season. Um, and whilst there's much to be celebrated in Christmas, um, and it's kind of the point of Advent, Advent kind of finds its culmination in Christmas, um, the church has always um, entered into this season in preparation for that. Um, when we think about Christmas, or at least the worst uh, kind of elements of that, uh, that seem to kind of get ramped up year after year after year um, within a kind of you know, within our culture. So Christmas can often kind of become this kind of holiday of consumerism, uh, where it's about shopping, it's about spending, uh, it's about, you know, presents that we uh, have to get, we have our list that we need to get through, it's about trees, it's about lights. Uh, oftentimes it can just be kind of nostalgia and our, our family traditions. Um, but with that, there can all, also be this kind of pressure to be happy, isn't that right? Tis the season. And, and all of the uh, kind of carols that we sing are about joy and they're about happiness. And there can be this kind of pressure uh, for Christmas to kind of measure up uh, to an emotional kind of state. Um, we don't want to disappoint other people or ourselves within that. Um, there's the food. Oh, the food. Um, sometimes there's a lot of family pressure, right? Uh, if you're married and, or young married, will, will we go to this family? Will we go here? There's a lot of kind of scrambling around. And, and if, we're, uh, if we're not careful, Christmas can just be this exhausting kind of season that either leads to uh, a kind of Christmas hangover afterwards uh, or kind of this kind of Christmas blues um, where we're not really sure what happened. We enter into this kind of whirlwind of, of a Christmas season. Now, there's a lot about those things that are good. Um, and can be redeemed as good. But all of these things are really just a shadow of something much bigger. 
Um, and really that's what Advent is for. It's to help us recognize. It's to help us enter into. Advent can be a posture. Advent uh, is just a, a word really that means arrival or coming. Um, and so there's this sense of expectation um, when you're waiting for this arrival. You're waiting for someone to come. Um, and for us, uh, that's not a man in a red suit. Uh, it's Jesus himself. And so Advent enters into, uh, and, and the thing I love about Advent is that it's just reality. It's just real. It, it's not going to put anything on for us. It recognizes what we already know to be true. And so there's a recognition of lack, uh, that, that not everything is right. Not everything will, will be a stuffed turkey uh, on the table. It doesn't ignore the reality. It admits it, our, our brokenness. It admits our need. And it's, uh, it, it looks ahead. This, it's not as consumed with uh, this instant gratification that we can just be uh, overwhelmed with during this time of year. It brings our heart into a posture of longing, into a, a sense of expectation. And this hope that, that we talked about today, this theme of hope, uh, and as Andrew rightly said, it's not a hope in that we, uh, it, something might happen. It, it, biblical Christian hope is the assurance of something that will come. Um, it's, it's a done deal. It's the reality already. It's just about time. And so whilst some of our kind of cultural uh, Christmas things are shadows, Advent really gets us down into the substance of what this season is, a substance over shadow. Advent is more complex than just simply, simply celebrating Christmas. And it must be intentionally entered into because the onslaught of uh, the kind of Christmas season appropriated by an increasingly Christless culture is a massive idol for us to resist. Now, I don't want it to be misheard this morning. I'm not advocating a, a sort of Christmas culture war where we're upset and boycotting Starbucks because they don't have Christmas on a cup or, or anything like this at all. I'm not advocating a Grinch, Scrooge-like mentality uh, where we can't have any joy until the morning of the 25th. Uh, it, it, it's not at all. But what I, what I do want us to do is celebrate uh, Christmas, a Christian holiday, Christianly. <laughs> I want us to turn our attention to God made flesh, to Jesus Christ, to turn our hearts, our, our affections, our hopes to the promises of God, um, which we sung about this morning. These promises that, that we know are, are yes and amen. And they find themselves uh, in, in flesh, God made flesh, this incarnation, the enfleshment of God. And that begins to change everything. God has made um, these promises to his people. And this is what we're going to do this morning is just kind of trace these promises that he's made to his people. He's made these covenants with his people to reveal himself. And these promises were the basis of their hope. They were the basis of their hope. Now, hope by definition, by, by just the very definition of hope, it requires patience. Right? That's, it's just in, in built into hope. Um, the reason that you're hoping is because that it's not presently the way it should be. And so you're hoping for something in the future. It has built-in future expectations. And, and it has built-in patience. We have to wait. And so Advent for us is how we wait. It's, it's the posture of how we wait. In our kind of insta-culture, we have really kind of lost this art of waiting. We've lost the art of patience, the concept of kind of long-suffering, 
um, has been really lost on our generation, isn't it? Now, I'm, I'm 43 years old, which means that I'm not old, um, but I'm not young either, right? So it's okay. I've come to grips. Pipe down, 30-year-olds. <laughs> and the 20-year-olds behind you are going, what are you talking about, old man? And <laughs> so, right? So I'm not old, but I'm, but I'm also not young. Um, I remember uh, I'm, I'm old enough like pre, to live pre-internet, and we used to have these things. If you wanted to get in touch with someone um, and you didn't know where they were, um, you know, you would call them on their home, and it would just keep ringing, and that's when you knew they weren't there because it didn't, it just kept ringing endlessly. And so if you really wanted to get a hold of them, um, when I was kind of a teenager, you would page them. So now if you don't know what a pager is, <laughs> then um, a pager was this little box you'd wear, like click on your belt, and it would beep, and it would look, and it would, a, number, a telephone number would come up. Now, you may or may not know who that telephone number was. So that meant you needed to call that number. So what did you have to do? You had to go to find a payphone. <laughs> you went and found a payphone and you put a quarter or whatever it was into it and you dialed this number and you called the person back and you're like, hey, I'm trying to get hold of you. And that's how you did it, right? So now I know that just sounds like bonkers and crazy uh, uh, in that way. But it, this idea of just sending a text and then just immediately wanting a response um, just didn't exist. Like you got a busy signal which maybe is the equivalent to being left on red now. I'm not sure. But this kind of like, I've sent you a text, and then you're like, why haven't you responded yet? Like, I expect you to be like immediate responses all the time. We're so connected. We're so instant. Everything is so fast. Um, I remember a time if you wanted to know something, you had a question or you, you needed some information, you had to go to a library and there were books there that held this information called encyclopedias. And you would look up. I remember like going to the library to study and getting encyclopedias and writing reports and papers and stuff like that. And, and um, now you don't have to go anywhere. You, it's not that you have some information. You literally have all the world's information like at your fingertips. Um, we have everything immediately. And so if you wanted to know, I mean, I remember like having conversations like who sings that song? And you're like, ah, man, I don't know. And you would just have to wait till you remembered. Like, you, like you, that's it. Like, or you'd have to, like, find someone else. Hey, do you know who's, and now you're like, oh, this is who sings it. Or, like, you don't even, have, you can just hold up an app. It will hear the song and tell you what it is. Like, it's just so fast. And so we get so impatient, don't we? We get so, we want it right now. Um, so when you're in a place and you don't have 4G or, like, Wi-Fi, you go into a, a restaurant or cafe, and they're like, yeah, we don't have Wi-Fi. You're like, you don't have Wi-Fi. Like, what is this, 92? Like, <laughs> and so this is, this is the world that you and I now live in. We are not patient people. Everything's microwavable and instant. And so we as God's people look to the scripture and we see in there God making promises to his people. Um, but the promises that he's made, he's fulfilling over thousands of years. There's millennia involved in the timing of God. Now, here we again find ourselves, we enter into, like our brothers and sisters were the first time, into a waiting, into a hope. And we wait and hope knowing um, that the reality of God is true, that God is faithful, that God is true, that he is reliable, that God is trustworthy, even if we don't like his timeline. And this is where we find ourselves. How, we've titled the series, Hearts Make Him Room. Um, and part of the way that we make room in our hearts is through waiting. It's in 
intentional longing with hope. It's in being still. We're going to see um, in Genesis 3 here in a minute uh, that God, just a, a quick overview, if you're not a Christian here this morning, a quick snapshot of Christian theology. We believe that in the beginning God creates everything. Um, we're not told exactly how he did all of that, but God created everything. And because God creates everything and because God is good, everything that he creates is good. He says so himself. Um, and so here we have God creating us, man and woman, and he's given us uh, everything that we need. And he's created uh, everything that he's created, including you and I, is created, uh, is meant to lead us to greater joy. And it's meant to lead us to greater joy than what the actual creation itself could give. So God has created, but in our experience of what he has created, that experience is meant to lead to a greater joy deeper than the actual thing that we're experiencing. We uh, call this worship. It's meant to lead to a greater worship of God himself, right? And so there's lots of different things that we could look at for that. We could look at food, right? God creates food, um, and he does that uh, to sustain us physically. But God could have just given us, um, you know, protein pills or whatever it is. Like here's one, one source of food and we just eat it and that's it. And it's just a kind of thing you do like washing your hair in the morning, right? It's no big deal. You just kind of do it. But he doesn't. He gives us all of these different, uh, different kinds of foods. Um, and, and that if you'll combine different flavors, if you can combine these different things, you can come up with all these amazing, delicious flavors, all these nuances and all these different places from different foods from different parts of the world. And, and all of this is meant to lead us to an enjoyment, a deep enjoyment. Um, but it's not meant to terminate on itself. In our enjoyment of that, that's meant to lead us to a greater joy of the God who's actually given us that food and a creative God who gave us food to, to enjoy with all these different flavors, Mexican food and Japanese food and spuds and, you know, the good old Ulster fry. And, and we could go through all sorts of stuff, sex, right? God created that. He wasn't surprised that that happened. That was his plan. Um, he, over and over again, um, commands uh, the, that we would be fruitful and multiply, but it wasn't just meant to terminate on that. It was meant, there's something in that experience that is meant to lead to a, a greater joy. You could talk about art. Um, we could talk about our work and vocation. All of these things are meant to lead us into a greater joy. But in the midst of this, in the midst of how God has created, sin enters in and fractures everything at every single level. Uh, we rebel against God, say no thanks. Um, we are going to, instead of worshiping the creator through all things, we are going to worship creation. We're going to actually, these things will, will be the things that we find our joy in. Um, we'll take God out of the picture. And everything in that moment as we rebel against him becomes fractured. The very cosmos itself, our soul, our relationships to each other, never mind our relationships to God. And rather than being drawn to creator, we're drawn to creation, which cannot bear the weight of our hope. It cannot bear the weight of our longing. It cannot bear the weight of what we all instinctively are longing for. And so food then turns into selfishness, where some people have plenty of it and, and others have hardly any at all. It turns into gluttony. It turns into entitlement. Um, things like alcohol. Uh, instead of um, enjoying a, a nice whiskey that takes 40 years to make, 
Um, you would sit down and enjoy the very nuance of that. We're going to make it quickly and cheaply and then bung a bunch of sugar into it so we can just drink as much of it as we can and forget about what it tastes like so we can just kind of forget our problems. That's not how, what it was created for, what it's meant to be created for. We take sex, and instead of it becoming one flesh, it becomes cheap thrills. It becomes just our satisfaction in the moment. It's not about a deep emotional, physical, spiritual entanglement of two people, of a husband and wife in a marriage. And now we use sex for everything. We, we use sex to sell just about everything. You ever seen a shampoo ad lately? I'm like, man, I've washed my hair a lot. There's nothing erotic about that experience. <laughs> like, I just want to wash my hair and get it done with. There's not, I'm not, there's nothing. And yet, here we are trying to use sex to sell washing your hair. And so in our rebellion against God in Genesis 3, it leads to evil, it leads to death, it leads to suffering and sadness, and it leaves us alienated from God. And in the midst of this, um, the instigator of all of this is Satan, the actual embodiment, the personification of evil and death. And here we see God speaking to Satan, and we'll see this in Genesis 3. This is God speaking to Satan after the fall, after Adam and Eve have, have rebelled against God. And uh, this is the first promise we see of uh, the hope that we will have as a broken and fallen people. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And here we have the very first promise that a man born of a woman will crush Satan. He will crush sin and death and destruction and sadness forever. And, and Satan's rule and reign will come to an end. This is the promise that we have. This is the promise of the hope that you and I have to enter into along with our brothers and sisters from the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, 3, the promise moves along. God speaking to Abram, who would become Abraham. He says, he makes this promise to him. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we're stringing these together. Um, I'm just giving you an overview. We're not going to be able to unpack all of uh, messianic theology today, but I, but I hope we'll get a good kind of understanding of what's happening here. Here, this promise is that I will make you a great nation. So now the man, we know that uh, the promise is, 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 is a man um, who's going to be born of a woman, and here the promise moves along, and we're going to see that this man will be a Jew. He's going to come from the line of Abraham. Um, I will make you a great nation. And all the nations will be blessed through you. Now, as we, we're going to move through several scripture, and I want, I want us to just picture like a massive funnel. Um, Genesis 3 at the top, Genesis 12, then Genesis 17, then Genesis 19. We're going to get in Isaiah. We're going to get all of these things are going to funnel down to um, the very incarnation of Jesus. The promise moves along um, as we go to Genesis 17. Verses six through eight. He says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Cana for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Now, 
if you notice there, this covenant, he says, is going to come to them. And it's going to come um, from kings that shall come from you. Now, this is fascinating because he's making a promise um, that his kingdom will be established and it will come from the kings of Israel. What's fascinating about that is Israel doesn't even have kings yet. There, there are no kings of Israel. God's making promises of something that hasn't even happened yet. As a matter of fact, the kingship of Israel is still hundreds of years away. Israel will be in exile in Egypt for over 500 years. And then they have to go through the wilderness. Over 500 years before this promise even begins to take shape. But God is moving his promises along. In Genesis 49... We then see Jacob, uh, who becomes Israel. God changes his name. Uh, It says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, um, Gather yourself together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. So in a patriarchal society, uh, Jacob gathered his sons together. He's going to bless them. And typically, that went to the firstborn son. The firstborn son kind of got everything. He was the next in line. Um, so he's gathering them together, and this is what he says to them. He says, assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Gather together, my sons, and listen. Um, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and my first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. You're like, and you can just see Reuben going, all right, all right, all right, here we go, here we go. Getting ready to get all the blessing. And then he goes, unstable is water. <laughs> You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. So because, of, because Reuben is just, he's, un, he's unstable, um, he's following his sexual appetites everywhere, he's like, you're not going to receive um, the birthright. You're not going to receive the blessing. And so he moves down. Simeon and Levi, verses five, 5 and 7, our brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory not be joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And we come to know that that's true. So he goes to the next two. And these two sons, he's like, you're violent men. You're murderous. I'm not giving you the blessing. I'm not giving you the birthright. He goes on then in verses 8 to 10. Judah. So Judah's fourth in line. The fourth son. Um, He is these 12 sons. These 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. And he goes to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. This is like you have to, uh, this is the time of year you gather together with family right? And family, you don't get much option on. You're just kind of born into it. So sometimes there's family dinners and hopefully they're joyous and great and everybody loves each other. But let's be honest, there's some family gatherings that can be a bit awkward, right? Um, Like you have these awkward conversations and you're like, I hope they don't bring up politics or I hope they don't bring, you know, whatever it is. This, I don't think anything's topping the awkwardness of this family meeting. Um, Calls them all together. Yeah, you're out. You're unstable. You guys are murderous and wicked. Uh, Number four, your brothers will praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Awkward. (laughs) Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? Don't mess with your brother Judah. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him be the obedience of the people. So here now we have the promise moving forward. The scepter, uh, which, is the rule, which is the sign of the rule of the king, shall not depart from Judah. It's ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and the obedience of the people. And so we move down the funnel. A man born of a woman from the Abrahamic line, and now we see from the tribe of Judah. These layers of promises that are taking place. Now, we have to talk about how the Old Testament is written and how we read that. Um, and so a couple words for you to leave here and sound really smart. Um, if someone asks you what you learned at church, just throw out these words and you'll sound super smart. Um, we read the New Testament, particularly that we read the Bible, but particularly the Old Testament in two ways, synchronically and diachronically. All right. Um, synchronically just means we read it uh, synchristically, historically as a timeline, right? So this is the real events. We're reading this as Jacob talking to his actual sons, giving his actual sons instructions. And we, we realize this is what's happening in the moment. This is the layer of what's happening here. We call this biblical theology, right? But there's also diachronic. There's things that are happening that are across the grain, broader meanings, bigger implications of what's happening here. It's, it's not just happening in the moment. There's another layer that's, that's on top of this. Okay, so the implications that come from this into kind of systematic theology. And so it's really important that we read our Bible both, both ways at the same time. Um, think about like these candles that are, that are here. If you were to take these two candles um, this is often how the prophets write, like seeing two candles, one, one behind another. So if you're looking this way, it can look like one candle. It's just one candle with one flame. But if you turn it on its side, you realize, no, there's two. If you're looking at it from the side, there's two, there's two candles here. It's not just one. But when, we're write, when, they're, writing the, when they're writing the Old Testament, it's off, they're speaking of two things, but often in, in the same way, in the same line. And so these are these prophecies. We get the benefit of looking at them from the side and going, oh, there's, there's two things that are happening here. And so what he's saying here, we know on, in one sense, is at least about King David coming. It's at least about King David. That's what's happening during their time. So he has this promise that's moving forward. But what's happening between now and this promise of a king? Even just King David. What's happening during that time? War, death, destruction, plagues, brokenness and sorrow. The rule and reign of our brokenness and our sinfulness is wreaking havoc on the earth. But all the while, God promising, I will crush his head. I will deal with this. I will win victoriously. I will send one born of a woman, a man born of a woman from the Abrahamic line, from the tribe of Judah. Numbers 24, the promise continues to move on. Here we see um, this prophet Balaam. Now, Balaam's a bit of a shady dude, okay, as it comes to prophets. Uh, he's a bit of a scoundrel. Um, and the king actually pays Balaam to come and <coughs> prophesy. I need to know what's going to happen. You know, he's making war plans. He's doing all this sorts of stuff. And so he actually pays Balaam to come and give him this prophecy. And so let's read this. This is what the king paid for. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. That's 
what we just looked at. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. We know where in Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, again, we know that this is at least about David that's coming. Um, but as we start to string these things together, as we start to look at the big promises of God, we know that, it, that here, what, what is God doing? He's joining his covenants that he's made with Abraham. He's joining the covenants that he's made with David, and he's joining them together. These covenants are starting to come in line. They're converging in with each other, leading to these promises. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about there will be a prophet that is raised up. He talks about a priest that will be raised up. He talks about a king uh, that will be raised up. Now, all of these in the Old Testament are all held by three different people. Those are three different offices. But we see the full culmination of that when Jesus comes. Jesus becomes all three of these things, prophet, priest, and king. He is the prophet speaking the true word of God. Actually, in flesh, the very logos, the very word of God. He is the priest mediating between us and God and the actual sacrifice. And he is the king reigning and ruling over all. In 2 Samuel 7, again, we see the promise move forward. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. What a poetic way to say when you die. I like it. I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he will build a house for my name. So this is a promise that's being made to David, okay? So David, your offspring, will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and I will be to him a father and him to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Now, again, two candles, two, two promises being made here. To David, the sons of his body, we, we know who that is. One of those is Solomon. Solomon builds the temple, right? And God deals with the iniquity of Saul in a way that doesn't spare the rod, but that he, he loves him throughout. But he's also making bigger promises that come through David, that come through his line, that his throne will be established forever. Now, we know that in the, in the, in the immediate sense, that's not true. His sons are eventually in exile. Eventually, they cease to be his nations. But this promise is true. The, messi the Messiah will be from the line of David. And his throne and his kingdom will be established forever. Jesus comes from this line. He comes from the line of David. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, okay, well, what does this have to, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I, I kind of understand this at some level, but what does this really have to do with me? I want us to, I didn't have um, enough text just to put it all up here, but if you have your Bible, um, turn to Psalm 89. Andrew and I spent some time um, at a conference looking at some of these lamenting psalms, and this is one of them. If we go to Psalm 89, remember all these promises that have been made to God's people. And they've actually turned these into songs that they sing. 
And, and it starts off, right? Uh, it, it starts off as this amazing song. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. Your promises, right? Um, for I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I've made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your thrones for all generations. And so this goes on. They're basically singing a song to God, reminding him of, remember the covenant that you made to David. Remember you said you would establish his throne forever. Remember all the promises that you have made to us. All the promises that the prophets have have revealed to us. Remember these and, and they're saying things that are true, right? You rule the raging of the sea. Who is as mighty as you, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. You've invented the north and the south. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And you're like, yeah, that's great. These people, right, really, really, really believing all of these things. But go down to verse 46 because things take a turn. They start to take a turn. They start to actually kind of question because they're like, yeah, this is who you are, God. These are the promises that you've made But this is the reality that we're living in. And it doesn't seem like we're living in the reality of these promises that you've made to us. We know you're a mighty God. We know this is what you've done. You've proven that to us in the past. We know you've made these covenants. We know you've made these promises. But look at the questions. These are, I love the Bible because it's just so honest. It doesn't try to sugarcoat anything. In verse 38, it takes this turn. Let's just look at, look at um, 30, 35. Once for all, I've sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. God, you said you wouldn't lie. You're not a liar. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. Selah. In verse 38. But now. So looking back, all of the faithfulness of God, all the covenants, all the promises, but now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your service. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all of his walls and have laid his strongholds in ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. God, where's this mighty arm? We're getting wrecked. Verse 46. These questions. Are these not questions that you've had? Are these not questions that we groan with in longing? These are Advent questions. How long, O Lord? How long? How long will you hide yourself? Forever? Will it be forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. I love that. Hey, I know you're eternal, God, but I'm not. 
Remember me. My life is short. I only have so much time. What man can live and never see death? These rhetorical questions that they know. Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, the power of hell? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which you swore faithfulness to David? Where is it? Remember how your servants are mocked. We're mocked. They mock the footsteps of your anointed. And they end with, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. What an Advent hymn. We know who you are. We, we've heard of your faithfulness. We've seen the proof. We believe it. We believe it. But how long, O oh Lord? Where, where is it for us? How long do we have to wait? Just the reality of the pain that they're feeling in that moment so here's, here's what they would have known up until this point. God has made covenants. He's made promises. Born a man born of a woman from the line of Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, in the line of David. And this man will destroy sin and death and all that ails mankind. Uh, he, will, he will vindicate his people and he will be a blessing to all nations. That's what they know. And they're asking these questions. But here's what they didn't know. How or when he would do any of that? How or when? But God keeps pushing the plan forward. He keeps pushing his promises forward. There's a lot that he's accomplishing in the meantime, in these spaces. There's things that people have to learn. There's other things that he has to accomplish. There's ways that he is revealing himself. There's people that he is rising up. But his promises is moving forward and he's reminding them so they don't forget. We come to Isaiah 7, 14 and 15. Um, I don't know if I have a slide for that one. Let me just see here. Isaiah 7. So many of these kind of messianic um, texts um, come from Isaiah Verses 14 and 15. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. I love that. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We sang it this morning. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and receive, and uh, knows how to receive, uh, refuse the evil and choose the good. And so the promise moves forward. A sign from the Lord, a son born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us. And the second part of that verse, he'll eat curds and honey. Curds and honey was the diet of peasants. It wasn't marrow and fatness and wine that would be his diet. This would be a person who is well acquainted with the plight of the poor. This is someone who would not come with power, but would come in humility, at least the first time. In Isaiah 9.1, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. This is the reading that we had this morning. 
In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Now, this, this area that he's referring to is an area of northern Israel. Um, most of the time that Israel gets invaded, it gets invaded from the north. Um, and so as, as people are making their way to the capital and to Jerusalem, the north, this area is getting murdered and torched and raped and, and plundered as armies are marching their way south to Jerusalem. So the Jews kind of looked at this area of the north in Galilee with contempt because they thought so did God. Otherwise, why, does, why do they keep just getting ransacked like this? But then we come into this, but no longer. But no longer. Uh, if we know anything as we read the Gospels, Galilee, uh, the, the Galilee of the nations is where Jesus did most of his earthly ministry. This forsaken kind of place that everybody else thought was cursed is going to be the place that Jesus is actually going to come. Emmanuel will actually come. We move forward in verses two. Then the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, for the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as the sun the day, as the, sun the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel of the fire. The promise, the Messiah will bring peace. Where once there was war, there was death, there was loss, there was sorrow. He will bring peace for a people in darkness, enslavement and oppression. Freedom is coming. The light is coming. So much so that the tools of war will be the very thing that we use to, to burn in the fire to heat us. We won't need them anymore. Conven continues in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Now that's where things have taken a turn. It's not just going to be a man. It's going to be God himself, as we saw in Isaiah 7. Emmanuel, God with us. Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, again, these covenants that are being pushed forward and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forward and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Israel, you could understand why they might have mistaken some of these to think that Jesus's kingdom was gonna be an earthly kingdom like David's. He's gonna come, he's gonna kick out the Romans, we're going to establish a Jewish kingdom on earth. And they misunderstood his reign. They misunderstood the nature of Jesus and his kingdom. Rome wasn't the problem. Solving the Rome problem didn't solve their problem because the problem was their very hearts. Our hearts are the problem. Our hearts are what give rise to murder, are what give rise to genocide, is what give rise to selfishness. And it's easy for us to say, well, I've never committed genocide. As you watch war tribunals this, this, this week of men being condemned guilty for that, you go, well, man, that's horrific. I'm not like that at all. And yet Jesus says in our very hearts, if we even look at someone with contempt and anger, we've committed a, 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 a murderous, we, we have a murderous uh, essence within us. The problem wasn't Rome. The problem was themselves. 
It wasn't a tyrannical government. It was the tyranny of enslaving sin that Jesus had to come and deal with. And again, the, it gets pushed forward to Isaiah 53. The promise continues to move. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For, who, uh, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we would look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He bore our griefs. He bores our sorrows. We have a, a, a Messiah who came, Jesus comes, but he understands those questions that we said before. How long, O oh Lord? He understands where those questions come from. He asks the same questions even on the cross. Betrayed, rejected by his own family, falsely accused and attacked. He suffers the loss of his friends and enters into, we, into weeping and grief. He's well acquainted with sorrow. He's well acquainted. In verse five, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace with his wounds and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before him and his shears is silent as he opened not his mouth. He fulfills this prophecy as he stands before Pilate accused and he doesn't say anything at all. And in these verses here, we see the beginnings. His generation didn't get it. They didn't understand but we begin to see this great exchange. He's pierced for our transgressions. And so we begin to see how. How will the head of sin and death be crushed? How will the enslavement of sin be broken? How will this Messiah come and do it? By crushing Rome? By setting up a throne in Jerusalem? By an earthly government? No, because those aren't the problem. Our problems are our heart. Our problems are our own sinful nature. And so he will take that upon himself. He will take our iniquities, our transgression, our sin, our shame, our rebellion, our hatred, our sectarianism. He takes all of that. And what Martin Luther calls the great exchange gives us his perfect righteousness, his holiness, his peace. And when God looks upon him, in this moment, he sees us and crushes him. And along with it, all of our sin. And he looks at us, and in that moment, he sees us as him, holy and blameless in his sight. How will the nations be blessed? How does God solve the sin problem? By taking the sin and iniquity of our hearts and giving us his righteousness to those who would repent, believe, 
and trust in the promises of God. That these promises of God are fulfilled in Jesus Christ Emmanuel. This is the substance of what we see now that the people of the Old Testament saw as a shadow. And that should cause you to be grateful and to be blessed um, that we are born into this time that we get to see even more clearly what they only saw dimly. But I hope you see now how Advent begins to work because we now are in a similar place. Our longing, our hope, our desires as believers, as followers of Jesus is for him. Our longings and desires are oriented and centered around Christ Why? Because he will return. The first incarnation, the first coming, the first advent was to deal with sin, was to deal with death, was to deal with enslavement. And then he returns, ascends to heaven. But the second time he returns, the final time he returns, will not be as a humble baby. We're told in Revelation and throughout the scripture that he'll return as a powerful, holy, good king to judge the living and the dead. And he brings his reward with him. And so we hope this time of year. We hope, we lift our eyes beyond the temporary, beyond the mere presence that are just a shadow of the present that we've been given by God himself. You see how the substance then fills the shadow with elements that we actually, um, understanding rightly, can enjoy. We can give gifts to each other knowing that this isn't what I'm living for. This isn't all, when I open these up and I get all my presents and you're like, is this it? Right? If you have kids, you know that, right? They're like, oh, this is great. What's the next one? You know, like, brilliant. What's the next one? And then you finally get to the end. You're like, is this it? Okay, all right. Well, I guess I'll go back and look and see what I've opened now. It's just like, it's, right? But a right understanding of Christian hope allows us to enter into these moments calmly and give each other good gifts because they're a shadow of the substance. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see the backside of 2017. <laughs> right? I mean, it's a rough year. Not, not just personally, I just mean for us communally, like humanity, 2017, it's been a tough one. Um, and so it would be good news to see the end of it. Uh, the bad news is, is that I'm not sure 2018 is going to be uh, that much better. Right? North Korea, Brexit, elections, peace in Ireland, border issues. Will we have a government here? And that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what each of us has going on internally and personally. Our own kind of personal issues, our relational strife and breakdown, our health problems, our dreams that just don't seem to be manifesting themselves yet, our anxieties. And yet we can look at these promises of God and we can have hope. We can have hope. And we can ask those questions, how long? But we ask them ultimately knowing the answers. We ask them the same way that Abraham and Moses and Jacob 
and David and Esther and Ruth and, and the apostles all have asked these same questions. Asking questions for now, but with the hope of eternal. That no matter what happens in the first candle, I understand what's happening in the second one. And all of my hope can be placed in there. Augustine talked about these things and, and us looking at them like through a stained glass. Imagine a stained glass, but your face is pressed right up against it. All you'd be able to really see is the colors, a bit of blue, a bit of green and yellow and, and some jagged edges. And it's, you can't really see through it all the way. And th- this is how we see. This is, this is our perspective. And yet God is able to stand back and see the full panel, the full story in all of its beauty, how this little piece and this little piece all connect together to tell one big story. And this is our hope. Our hope is that we get to see parts. We understand that this isn't the whole picture. But our hope is in one who is and trusting that what he has told us about this reality is true. And for us, we know it's true because of how he has kept his promises continually. And so maybe you're in a season of how long, O Lord? And my encouragement to you this morning is to put your hope in Christ. Find our hopes in him, our purposes, our identity, our fulfillment in him. Let those things fill all of our temporary, all of our earthly, all of these things with meaning and purpose and hope that we actually get to enter into. It'll change the way that you approach your vocation. It'll change the way that you approach relationships. And it'll change the way that we approach Christmas even this year. Let me pray for us. Father, we confess that... um, we are frail. We confess that we are, are finite, uh, that we are weak. We confess that we don't like it confessing those things. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help us this morning. Um, for those of us that are followers of Jesus to believe, um, help our unbelief, even in the midst of our belief. Raise our eyes and our perspective Um, to eternal promises that you have fulfilled in Christ. Father, um, I pray for those that uh, are here this morning that that aren't followers of Jesus, that, um, that they would hear these promises and that your spirit would put hope in their hearts that these are true. Not in a I hope so maybe kind of way, but in a definitely reality kind of way that we enter into. May today be their first day of of understanding um, that all of your promises are yes and amen um, to us. As we come to the table um, to receive these means of grace of bread and wine, um, till we remember how you have accomplished all of these things. By your stripes, we are healed. Because you were crushed, we didn't have to be. Um, Because... um, You experience death. We don't have to. And we do in a temporary way, but not in an eternal way, not in a way that really matters for eternity. May we cling to these promises to be true um, this morning.